Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Changing Treatment Paradigms in Type 1 Diabetes, Role of Anti-CD3 Targeted Therapy, Screening for Islet Autoantibodies in Children and Adolescents to Prevent or Delay T1D, is provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine and is supported by an educational grant from Prevention Bio. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, my name is Kevin Harold. I'm Professor of Immunobiology and Internal Medicine at Yale University. Thanks for joining us again for this third program. The topic for today is screening for islet autoantibodies in children and adolescents to prevent or delay type 1 diabetes. There's been a tremendous amount of progress in this field, and fortunately today we have two of the leaders who are very well known for their expertise in screening and in therapeutic trials in type 1 diabetes, Dr. Annette Ziegler and Dr. Andrea Steck. Dr. Ziegler is Professor of Diabetes and Gestational Diabetes at the Technical University of Munich and Director of the Institute of Diabetes Research at the Hemholtz Center in Munich. Dr. Steck is Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Colorado. We'll first hear from Dr. Ziegler. The topic of her talk will be screening for eyelid autoantibodies to delay and prevent type 1 diabetes. Aneta, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Kevin, for your kind introduction. Over the past 100 years, since the discovery of insulin, there have been enormous advances in the therapy of type 1 diabetes. Still, type 1 diabetes, when diagnosed before the age of 10 years, means 16 years loss of life, as recently reported in The Lancet by a study of over one. 150,000 individuals. That underlines the importance of new therapeutic approaches such as prevention or delay of the onset of diabetes in children. And we are very fortunate that we actually in fact have already one therapy. This is a milestone study showing that type one diabetes can be delayed by immunotherapy through one single course of 14 days treatment with a monoclonal antibody teplizumab by an average of three years and with a risk reduction to the development of diabetes of over 50%. So the challenge today is really how we can, on a broad population-based level, identify people that benefit from such a immunotherapy. And this therapy is given at a state of pre-symptomatic disease where children do not have a classical form of type 1 diabetes. So what does it mean exactly identifying people with pre-symptomatic disease? I think you are familiar with the classical onset of type 1 diabetes, which we today also call stage 3 type 1 diabetes, where a child or individual has symptoms and is hyperglycemic. But 
type 1 diabetes in its clinical onset is preceded by a asymptomatic stage of autoimmunity. This stage is we can diagnose by the detection of islet autoantibodies. And this is actually the stage where we want to apply these immunotherapies. We have in Germany, in Bavaria, explored a screening for islet antibodies for these early stages of type 1 diabetes in a study called FRIDA. The rationale for this population-based screening was twofold. Once by early detection of the disease, we can prevent diabetic ketoacidosis, population-based level, reduce family burden, and eventually also reduce healthcare costs. But the second objective was indeed to identify children who benefit from immune-based therapies to be able to prevent insulin dependence or at least delay the classical onset of type 1 diabetes. So in this study, what approach did we take? We introduced the screening for islet antibodies into the population by attaching it to regular well-child visits at the age of two to six years. All children were offered a one-time screening in capillary blood. The pediatricians or primary care physicians took the sample and sent it to a central laboratory that was in my institution. We screened the sample with a very high throughput test for three antibodies in one test. When this sample was positive, then in the same capillary blood, we tested four different islet antibodies. And when we found more than two islet antibodies, we informed the pediatrician and we asked for a second sample, this time a venous blood sample. We took a venous sample for the second time because we are a little bit more confident with our threshold values in venous blood, that capillary blood, capillary blood is more frequently also hemolytic and sometimes not so easy to clearly judge for the final diagnosis. And if this second venous blood sample was positive again, a diagnosis of early presymptomatic stage one type one diabetes was made. And the family, the children were invited further for metabolic staging by an oral glucose tolerance test. We had over 600 pediatricians and physicians participating in this research program. And it was also supported by our health ministry. And the health ministry, with this poster, helped us to advertise this model project screening in Bavaria. The results of our screening were published last year in JAMA. At that time of publication, we had screened over 90,000 children, and we found 280, which is 0.31%, to have this presymptomatic stage one diabetes, or can also say have at least two islet autoantibodies. So we invited those children for further staging for the oral glucose tolerance test. And when we performed this test, we found 
that around 80% of the children were still normal glycemic. But already 20% had some form of abnormal glucose values or had even without any symptoms, hyperglycemia. We also invited the families to an educational program at that time to inform them about type 1 diabetes, how they can test blood sugar levels, and how the follow-up would look like. So all the families were invited to do some follow-up for control of glucose levels of HbA1c. During follow-up of these children, we found that already within three years, a quota had progressed to insulin dependence without any immunotherapy. And only two developed ketoacidosis, this is less than 5%, which is markedly less than the population average DKA in newly diagnosed children of about 30 to 50% in most populations, showing that by this early diagnosis, one can indeed prevent DKA. So what contributes to disease progression? The number of islet antibodies detected and also the specificity of these islet antibodies, in particular, if you had IA2 antibodies, your progression rate was faster than average. But what was really also important, we did not see any difference in progression rate between children coming from the general population, and that was the majority of these 90,000 children, almost all had no family history, but a few had a family history with diabetes, but their progression was absolutely identical. You may ask the question why we had chosen the age range of two to six years. I think that's an important consideration. What is the optimum age for screening? So you can see here from two natural history studies, uh, baby diab and the Teddy study, that these antibodies, and this is shown here as incidence, occur very early in life the majority of children who develop multiple islet antibodies does so before the age of four years. This was shown by both studies. What is also important that before the age of four years, about 11%, so one-tenth, has already pro progressed to clinical diabetes, showing that finding the right age of screening is a compromise between being sensitive and having developed these antibodies, but not yet progressed to clinical disease. Also, a very important screening consideration is that we found that there is, in fact, an exponential age-related uh, antibody risk decline. What does this mean? A child, for example, because it has many genes predisposing for type 1 diabetes, has at birth a risk of almost 10%, which is also shown here, then this same child, if it's tested negative at eight years, has a projected remaining risk for the next five years of only 0.2%. So in the first years of life, the decision is somehow made whether a child will develop this disease or remains healthy. And therefore, it is 
very helpful in these years to do these tests to also give advice for the families what happens in the future. In the Teddy study, we actually modeled the test performance. If you can only do one screen, then the best age in terms of sensitivity, specificity, performance would be three to four years. But if you can afford to do two screens, is of course better in terms of sensitivity, then the first screening should be at the age of two to three and the second screen at the age of five to seven years. And we have actually in the FRIDA study now implemented this. This FRIDA study now continues as FRIDA Plus with two possible screens in children aged two to 10 years. In summary, I have shown you that population-based screening for islet antibodies is feasible and is very well accepted by pediatricians and can also prevent diabetic ketoacidosis. The approach requires a strategy with high test specificity because we do not want to identify children that have no risk to progress. Population prevalence of early type 1 diabetes in Germany is around 0.3%, with 80% still normal glycemic, 20% already having abnormal glucose values. Disease progression is very similar between close relatives and children without a family history of diabetes. Island antibodies appear early in life and the risk decline is exponential with age. And the best screening performance, if you do one screen, age three to four, two screens, age two to three, and then again, age five to seven years. I thank you very much for your attention. And I would like to pass over now to my colleague, Andrea, for the second presentation. Thank you for your introduction. Today, I will discuss potential for type 1 diabetes prevention. So what is needed for type 1 diabetes prevention? First of all, we do need accurate prediction for type 1 diabetes, which we currently actually have. And then we also need appropriate screening strategies for subjects at risk for type 1 diabetes, which was discussed in the previous talk by Dr. Tigger. And then finally, we will need to have available prevention strategies. This slide shows progression to type 1 diabetes in children with multiple antibodies. On the left, overall risk of progression is about 70% by 10 years of follow-up since zero conversion. And then on the right, you can see that this cumulative risk does not differ by country nor by first degree relatives. This was a study that combined data from DAISY, DIP, and Baby Diab. DIP is a general population prospective cohort in Finland. DAISY is a cohort of relative of type 1 diabetes patients and a general population newborn cohort in Colorado with about 50% first degree relative and 50% general population. And the baby diab is a prospective cohort of offsprings of type 1 diabetes patients in Germany. And so in these three studies, the rate of progression seems to be relatively constant at approximately 11% per year over a 10-year time span. In 2015, the ADA, JDREF, and the Endocrine Society published a joint statement that described stages of type 1. 
in stage one, a person is euglycemic with no symptoms, but is positive for multiple islet autoantibodies. Stage two occurs when a person with multiple autoantibodies begins to have dysglycemia, but remains clinically asymptomatic. And then in stage three, a patient has classical diabetes symptoms in the presence of significant dysglycemia and meets the standard ADA diagnostic criteria for type one. Also, the sequence of event has become predictable. The rate of progression to type one varies widely between individuals. Type one diabetes is an autoimmune disease, but is heterogeneous in various aspects, including from a genetic, immunologic, metabolic, and pathologic standpoint. Here I'm showing one of the heterogeneity aspects from a metabolic standpoint. C-peptide data from subject diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and enrolled in trial net intervention study is shown here, with 407 subjects from five trial net intervention studies. The percentage of individuals with stimulated C-peptide, defined as above 0.2 nanomoles per liter, continues to diminish over four years after onset and is markedly influenced by age with a faster decline in subject below age 12 compared to adults. Screening for autoantibodies. Screening associated with monitoring has been shown to result in significant reduction of diabetes ketoacidosis at diagnosis. It is not yet the standard of care. It's currently done in the context of research studies such as TrialNet, which is an international study for relatives of type 1 diabetes patients, and type 1 diabetes antibody screening is done for subjects between the ages of 2 and a half and 45 years. TrialNet also offers prevention trials. Research is now looking at universal screening, and this has been done as in Frida in Germany, as shown by Dr. Ziegler as well as ASK, which is a general population type 1 diabetes and celiac antibody screening for children in Colorado ages 1 through 17. Other screening opportunities are developing. One is the PRIMED study. This is a Virginia project screening for type 1 diabetes genetic risk, followed by antibody testing in those found to be at increased genetic risk. And more recently, there is the JGF islet autoantibody screening initiative, or T1 detect, where individuals can sign up online and order a test kit to be delivered to their home. Subjects collect their capillary blood on dry blood spot and send the kit back. Participants then receive their autoantibody results through their online account. This is not a research project and the cost of the kit is about $59. Families have the option to forward the results to a clinician when signing up. Prevention strategies are classified primary prevention, involves subjects at high risk of type 1 diabetes from a genetic standpoint. These include different studies, such as the trigger study, which compared breast milk versus hydrolyzed formula versus cow's milk, or antigen-based therapy, such as insulin and GAD. Some of these studies are still ongoing, but the results have been primarily negative to date. Secondary prevention involves drugs or insulin, for example, rabetacept at stage 1 type 1 diabetes, or teprizumab at stage 2 T1D. And then tertiary prevention are done at stage 3 type 1 diabetes with the goal to prolong the honeymoon phase. Studies in recent onset type 1 that have shown a positive, most often transient effect include rituximab, abetacept, teprizumab, low-dose ATG, 
as well as golimumab. And then more recently, the trepuzumab study in stage 2 T1D actually showed a 2 to 3-year delay to stage 3 type 1 diabetes. I'm now going to be discussing a few studies that are currently ongoing or have recently been published in type 1 diabetes, including hydroxychloroquine at stage 1 T1D, tepuzumab at stage 2 T1D, which is now an ongoing study at stage 3 T1D, and then golimumab, which recently published results at stage 3 T1D and is now uh, moving towards a stage 2 trial. In TrialNet, about 20% of individuals at stage 1 type 1 diabetes will progress to stage 2 within 4 years. And overall, almost 50% of those at stage 2 will develop clinically over type 1 diabetes within 2 years. And more children than adults typically progress from stage 1 to stage 2, as well as from stage 2 to stage 3. Hydroxychloroquine is an FDA-approved agent for the treatment of malaria, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and dermatological conditions. It's widely used in clinical practice, including in children for malaria and pediatric rheumatology. Hydroxychloroquine has been shown to slow the progression towards disease in subjects who have the pre-disease state in rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. That is the reason that TrialNet is doing a trial in stage 1 type 1 diabetes. This is a two-arm, double-blinded, multi-center, two-to-one randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial where subjects are receiving either hydroxychloroquine or placebo. The primary objective is to determine whether intervention with hydroxychloroquine will delay the progression from stage 1 to stage 2 or stage 3 type 1 diabetes. Secondary objective includes safety and tolerability, as well as metabolic, immunologic, and mechanistic outcomes. The TIGER study has shown benefits of golimumab, which is an anti-TNF-alpha agent, in newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes patients aged 6 to 21 years old. This was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. On the left, you can see that the mean 4-hour C-peptide area under the curve at week 52 was significantly different in the Golimab group compared to the placebo group. On the right, the mean hemoglobin A1C levels were not significantly different between these two well-controlled groups. Here, the mean change from baseline through week 52 in daily insulin use was lower with golimumab than with placebo. And on the right, a partial remission response, which is defined as either an increase or a minimal decrease from the baseline C-peptide area under the curve, was observed in 43% of the participants in the golimumab group compared to only 7% of the participant in the placebo group. This is the first clinical trial using one course of teplizumab, which showed a delay in the progression towards type 1 diabetes in subjects that were at stage 2T1D, meaning relatives who had multiple antibodies and signs of dysglycemia. And this has led to a phase 3 study using teplizumab in children aged 8 to 17 years of age, the PROTECT study, where children are receiving teplizumab within six weeks of diagnosis. The goal is to provide outcome data that will support the FDA approval of teprizumab as the first disease-modifying therapy in type 1 diabetes. The primary objective of the PROTECT study is to determine whether two courses of teprizumab 
administered six months apart will slow the loss of beta cells and preserve beta cell function in children and adolescents with new onset type 1. The primary endpoint is the area under the curve of AUCC peptide after four-hour mixed meal tolerance test, which is the standard measure of insulin production and beta cell function. In summary, once two antibodies are persistently present, progression to type 1 diabetes seems inevitable but is variable in time. We now have a first positive trial with teprizumab delaying the onset of type 1 diabetes. And better understanding heterogeneity will help us tailor prevention strategies for subjects at high risk for type 1. Trialnet in the US and the Inodia project in Europe are some of the consortiums with the goal of finding type 1 diabetes, disease-modifying therapies, and prevention. And these efforts will facilitate personalized prediction, prevention, and treatment for type 1. Thank you for your attention. Aneta and Andrew, thank you very much for those terrific presentations. As you think about screening the general population, it's one thing to do measurements of autoantibodies using a serum sample. It's another thing to do an oral glucose tolerance test, which is not acceptable for very young children to the same extent as getting a single blood draw might be. The question I want to ask you is what your feelings are about the necessity to do this. Because the graphs, for the most part, show progression of double antibody individuals, in other words, stage one individuals, and the natural history data, particularly, Andrea, the, the graph that you showed with the different studies, looks pretty compelling that this is going to happen. Is it really necessary to require that oral glucose tolerance tests are done? As you may know, we have at the Barbara Davis Center looked at some other metrics besides the oral glucose tolerance test. And we actually have been doing continuous glucose monitoring or sensors in subject with multiple autoantibody positives in DAISY, which is the study I presented. We're actually doing that in ASK as well. And so we have shown in DAISY that if you spend more than 18% time above 140, which is similar cutoff than what we can take from the OGTT, you're at higher risk of progression to type 1 diabetes. And we are currently analyzing our ASK data, which is not yet published, but it seems to be showing similar results. There have been a few other studies also looking at CGM including the trial net study, which is also still analyzing results. But I, I do think that there are actually going to be other measures that might be easier for following a lot of children, especially those from the general population, such as continuous glucose monitoring. Nana, what do you think? Because you, you have experience with a very young general population. I think the oral glucose tolerance is still the gold standard. And I think we need to have some idea where the children are in terms of developing hyperglycemia and eventually also DKA in order to also tell them how frequently they have to self-monitor, etc. But I agree that in the future, that may not be necessarily the standard oral glucose tolerance test. It could be other means that have to be, of course, compared so that we know exactly the definitions of stage three diabetes, for example. But I think the glucose is important because we know, and your studies have shown that as well, that if you have stage two, the progression is much faster than if you are still completely normal glycemic, and that is important information. 
I think that maybe one oral glucose tolerance test at the first staging is sufficient. One doesn't need to repeat that every six months or three months, but I think at the beginning it would be helpful. Maybe age can be used in that analysis of the data. In other words, a young child with two positive autoantibodies is very likely to progress rapidly. An older individual, maybe then we need to have an oral glucose tolerance test to identify the, the most rapid progressors. I agree with Dr. Tigger that I think we do need some information on this glycemia status, because I think some of our prevention trials, like teprizumab, one of the entry criteria is that they're already at stage two, right? So we'll, we'll probably have more aggressive strategies for someone at stage two than we would have for someone at stage one, type one diabetes, because I do think in the future, we'll have probably multiple agents that can help prevent type one diabetes. But for these, even just to put them into trials, you would need a way to assess what your dysglycemia status is. And we have also shown, I think, at the BDC, both in DAISY and actually in TrialNet, that you can also do modified oral glucose tolerance tests, where basically instead of doing a two-hour test, you do a one-hour test. And you don't even necessarily need to have an IV because what we have been doing is just the fasting and a one-hour test. So it's two blood draws. You don't necessarily need the IV, which sometimes is an issue in little kids. So there might be other ways as either a modified oral glucose tolerance test, or my preference would be probably continuous glucose monitoring, which we have done in the ASK study, which in very young children and is very well tolerated to wear a CGM for a week or 10 days. Annetta, your data is so compelling about the changes in very young children that seem to predict this progression to diabetes. I guess I still have in my mind this idea that we're talking about something that occurs a few years before the onset of disease. And yet what you're saying is that's not really right. It's actually occurring way before that. In individuals who are in their late teens, is it the same story? If we think about the early peak in the onset of diabetes and the later peak, even later in adolescence, are those who, who, who are developing it later still changing to positive autoantibodies between the ages of one and five? In other words, on a practical basis, I like to use autoantibody screening to be able to tell families the likelihood that your child will develop diabetes is very low. Can we still make those predictions if we screen within the first five years? I think we can. We must say that after a certain age, be it five years or six years, the risk plateaus. There is still a very small remaining risk over probably the rest of your life. It is never going down to zero, zero, but it is much lower than in the first five or six years. And this is why I think the first five years are so immensely critical. And if you have survived them without developing any autoimmunity, then your likelihood is very, very low. But it is not 100% guaranteed that you don't develop it. Annetta and Andrew, thank you very much. That was very, very good. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine and is supported by an educational grant from Provention Bio. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.